0: What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and we're so excited that you're tuning in for another week. If you didn't hear last week, I'm here to tell you this week again that we're pausing our Church Hurt series and we're replaying Courageous Conversations 2018. So y'all can get excited about Courageous Conversations 2019 that's coming up August 1st and 2nd in Atlanta, Georgia at the Greater Piney Grove Baptist Church. I'm so excited we have seven different conversations, 28 scholars, thought leaders, and pastors to touch on a number of different topics like hell, like Paul's sexual ethics, like preaching to black millennials, interpreting the Old Testament in light of the new sin, discerning truth. It is going to be a fantastic time, so make sure you register and join us um, August 1st and 2nd in Atlanta, Georgia. Last week, we played the episode of The Authority of Scripture. This week, we're playing Paul versus Jesus. So, I hope you enjoy another week of the podcast. Make sure you register. You can register at CourageousCombos.org. And for those listening today, we have a special treat for you. If you use the code JESUS, you'll get a $50 registration. Again, that's the code JESUS, J-U-S-U-S, our Savior. Um, So, if you use that code, you'll get $50 for registration until July 6th. So use it, share it, register today. Um, I look forward to seeing you on August 1st and 2nd in Atlanta, Georgia. Let's get into today's episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Today's courageous conversation is Paul versus Jesus, whose words carry more weight. And we have four phenomenal New Testament scholars that I'm excited about. The first one is Dr. Angela Parker. She is the New Testament professor at Seattle School of Theology in Seattle, Washington. The second one is Dr. Delman Coates. He is the senior pastor of the Mount Enon Baptist Church in Maryland. The third is Dr. Dennis Edwards. He's the New Testament professor at Northern Seminary in Chicago, Illinois. And the fourth one is Dr. Esau McCauley. He is the New Testament professor in Rochester, New York at Northeastern Seminary.
1: To people like me, I know we are filled with seminarians and theologians and pastors but let's say common normal folk like me. Why don't we just start with what is this conversation even about? Paul versus Jesus. Why is that even a thing? Why are we, why would we even have that conversation?
2: I'll start off and I'll start off with a small anecdote. I teach an introductory introductory New Testament class and at the end of my syllabus I have a wine list that I say pair a glass of pinot grigio with this particular New Testament text as you read. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: <laughs> we all want oh, to go to your party. Like yeah.
2: <laughs> I'll, I'll submit the wine list to you all. <laughs> And Oftentimes, I have students who come to me, and this could be a variety of students. I had one, an Assemblies of God student that came to me and was so upset that there was this wine list attached to her New Testament syllabus, and I said, honey, context matters. Context, context, context. You have Paul, who's writing to folks who are in an urban context and talking about don't Drink too much wine. Don't do this. Don't do that. Blah, blah, blah. But you have Jesus who's accused of being a wine bibber. He's accused of being a drunk. Jesus in an agrarian context is going to think slightly differently about wine than Paul in an urban context. And so these conversations that we have about Paul versus Jesus are actually very important. And so I usher students in a little bit with my wine list.
3: Thank you. Can, Thank can you. I can I give a, 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 another story to give a little bit of background? I didn't know about this conversation either when I went to seminary. And I just thought I was going to come and study the Bible. And when I first got to seminary, one of the first things that happened to me is that I was assaulted by the Pauline experts. And they... They started asking about the new perspective, the old perspective, W imputation, all of this stuff. And I was like, I just want to talk about Jesus. I was trying to be pious. <laughs> and so for a long time, I didn't, and, and just to be honest, just to be completely honest, a lot of that discussion of Paul was linked to a certain culture, white culture, and normativity. And so the question wasn't just what was my interpretation of Paul, but did I fit in? Did I know the language? Did I know the lingo? And I didn't. And so I felt like I was inferior and I didn't know Greek. They had studied Greek before they got there. And so I was like, you know what? Y'all can have Paul. I'm going to Trump. you. I'm going to go full Jesus. And so for a long time, I wanted to be a new Testament. I mean, I wanted to be a gospel scholar. So it's, it's the biggest surprise in the world to me that I end up in the long scope of history coming back around to Paul. But I would think that, In reality, a lot of the conversation around Pauline interpretation has been had exclusively in white spaces. And when African-Americans come to that place and get that conversation, it's often disorienting. Mm -hmm.
4: Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And uh, I want to thank you for inviting us to start with this question of why are we asking this question in the first place? Because when I received a set of questions, I struggled with the question itself. And it really invites us to really consider the context of historical criticism as a field of um, methodological inquiry. What many people fail to realize, and I think your comment was so appropriate, is that the um, subfield of biblical criticism, historical criticism, is really rooted in a um, pursuit that has its origins in Germany to find the original arian jesus that was imagined in the mind of these early german theologians that if we can appropriate certain methodological tools we can we can isolate sayings in the jesus tradition that we regard as earlier by stratifying the sayings of jesus even though we all see the words in red and we assume these all come from jesus but there's this stratification There's this stratification of the sayings of Jesus. There is this very extensive um, uh, criticism of Paul. Um, You know, I find myself asking which Jesus, which Paul, you know, but all of this is rooted in in a pursuit of this pure Aryan figure that is imagined in the mind of the early scholars. And we have inherited all of their questions All of their obsessions and all of their tools, and I reject those questions um, because I think they are decidedly a part of a project that I think is is against the aim, the liberation aims, and the agendas of uh, the people that I serve. And so I think I want to thank you for inviting us to start there because we do need to contextualize the question, and we have not done a sufficient job of contextualizing the tools. Uh, that we have received because they inform so many of the questions that we ask throughout this day in the prior panel, and we need to spend more time uh, doing yeah. that. So to summarize
1: why Jesus has no power to save. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, I just wanted to add a couple of things in
5: there, a, but thank you all. I mean, I, I, I share much of that experience, too. I think part of it is a question of ethics that people think Paul has given, or well, they, they read Pauline letters, see a lot of the don't do this, do this, and don't see that in the gospels. So perhaps the question is really a question of um, the Pauline literature versus the gospels per se, maybe not Jesus per se, because you see, for example, in the teachings of Jesus, you you hear his main message of turn because the kingdom of heaven is close by. And then you look at Paul and you don't see the kingdom of heaven operative in much of Pauline teaching. So there's a question of, is, is Paul even interacting with the teachings of Jesus? Those are the kinds of questions that I think start to make uh, attention. Mm-hmm. How do the Pauline
3: letters or the Pauline corpus, uh, how does it relate to the gospels themselves? I'm, I might say the kingdom is in Paul. We just read them wrong. Well, I, 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 that's <laughs> the first and, part. And I, and I,
5: some, I mean, we can get to that. Yeah. But I mm-hmm. just mean, you look, you look at it, and you don't see that same kind of interaction of term because the kingdom is here. You, uh, Paul, so I, I'm just offering that as one reason why we see attention.
2: But I also have to point out that we do have to, again, contextualize even our text. Paul's writings come first. And so he's right. hearing oral tradition about Jesus. And then he's writing to to communities who are trying to figure out how are we Jesus followers in the midst of this? And then you have to think that then later, years later, People are starting to put together the Gospels and say, oh, maybe we need to write some of this stuff down. So when we think about Paul versus Jesus, we actually I think we have to think about what does the continuum of thought look like when we're thinking about our New Testament text in its entirety?
4: An understanding of sacredness that struggles with conflict and contradiction. My understanding of sacredness is big enough and broad enough to embrace conflict and contradiction and so for me um, I think it's interesting that we're calling this meeting today courageous conversations because the Bible that we've inherited in my mind I imagine is like the first courageous conversation where there's a great deal of conflict contradiction negotiation and yet what makes the faith that we identify with so rich is that it can handle the great diversity within our communion. There is diversity before there is um, unity. There is no, this notion's about originality. The reason there's a tradition of scholarship that privileges Paul over the Jesus tradition is because, again, they are trying to find this pure, original figure. It's a part of a Protestant anti-catholic project which imagines the gospel tradition as being imbued with a lot of um, ritual mysticism uh, traditions that they imagine as being derived from uh, Greco-Roman pagan religions but you can have this pure Paul fellow who is untainted he's pure he's untainted um, not just religiously theologically but he's also culturally untainted. This is also the same kind of project that's in the Jesus seminar kind of movement for those familiar with uh, the Jesus historic find the quest for the historic Jesus. And I just think that this project of conflict, contradiction, first and last, is a quest that I don't know is is a project that's healthy for us. I don't know if it's a project that we want to be a part of. That's just my thought on it.
2: Mm. We have to recognize that the project is out there and that, especially when we think about white German scholars who try to figure out Paul as the perfect European identity, or even think about Jesus as the perfect Aryan identity. I think part of what we have to do is fight against that scholarship. We have to be cognizant enough of the scholarship in order to argue against it, because in my context, I have students who will come to me from those same presuppositions. From the idea that there is a, Jesus is a universal figure who is a, becomes a white universal figure in their brain. And the same thing with Paul. So I have to be aware of the scholarship in order to fight back against it and give my students something a little bit broader and broadening up both Jesus and Paul. So I don't think it's a Jesus versus Paul. It's how European intellectuals have tried to contextualize them or decontextualize them in order to make them both white. That's the problem.
3: Let me... Go ahead. Go ahead. Cook.
1: So let me raise a question yeah. for um, the folk that could be watching this, yeah. the regular folk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm reading my Bible yes. in my house. Yes. Because that's the way I read it. Yeah. <laughs> Not in the classroom. <laughs> And I'm reading some things. I'm reading some things that Paul is saying and that Jesus is saying. And I, I call up what happens to be my, my trusty scholars on speed dial. And I'm like, this seems to be in contradiction. What do you say to me?
3: I think that the message of Jesus and the message of Paul are in fundamental agreement. Um, I think that Paul spoke about the kingdom. I think that um, one of the things that happened, and and this, this is – if we're going to talk seriously about the history of scholarship then, and we're going to talk seriously about this idea that at the origin of, uh, of German interpretation of the New Testament was the idea that in order for Jesus to become universal, he had to become less Jewish and that Paul was the person who made Jesus less Jewish and popular for his audience. And Christianity becomes universal as it leaves Judaism behind. And if that's the case, then you're going to read Paul without looking for the New Testament resonances in what he says, which means you're going to then see Paul as a theologian who's talking about abstract thought and not someone who's talking about the kingdom. But if you understand that throughout all of Paul's letters, he's constantly drawing on this grand story of Israel. And he's talking about he's using Isaiah the entire time. Right. And Paul, like Galatians, my area, Galatians is like is a rereading of Isaiah. OK, then what do you do when you open the Gospels? The first thing you see is, is John the Baptist, who himself is saying, I, I'm preparing the way for the Lord, as said in Isaiah. And so I said, if you understand Paul rightly and you understand how he uses Scripture, you begin to, to get a better understanding of their continuity. And I'm going to say one more thing. I read Howard, Howard, Howard Thurman, um, Jesus and the Disinherited. And I read him after I fin- towards the back end of my Ph.D., and just about everything that was said, the new perspective on Paul, is in that book. Right. So the mm-hmm. entire revolution of we need to take the Exodus seriously, we need to take the Old Testament seriously, we need to make Jew- Jesus Jewish again, is in black interpretation of Paul. Right. And so I would say that one of the, one, the reason why there's often this tension is because we've not read Paul rightly, and we've not understood Paul himself as, an, as a reteller of Israel's story in the same way that Jesus was.
5: I, I just wanted to jump in here. I'm, I'm with you on this, uh, Esau. I guess the, the other part, and, and you, Doc, you refer to uh, people who prioritize Paul, I think, um, and I wanted to ask you who, what groups you might see that. I don't know if that's like out in folks. But I guess but my, my point, though, is to is that there's this sense of, um, of, um, uh, of, Jesus, of, of, of Paul's, of people's understanding of, of Christianity, let's put it that way, more broadly, as me, in merely Pauline language so to say that it's all about justification per se and and then you don't see that kind of language in the gospels you don't hear it out of the mouth of jesus so i guess all i'm all i'm saying is that your friends who are reading their bible i think the, the natural reading is where their attention might rest are in ethics you know in terms of you get a sense of paul drawing lines and you get a sense of jesus drawing circles you know in that sense but i think it's also a question of of what is, when we boil it down to what's the essence, we go to Paul, at least in many Protestant circles, and we say yeah. it's about justification. And, and you don't see that language in the gospel. So I'm not offering that as, a, uh, as, as going to the solution. I'm just trying to outline what I think some of that tension is, is in that kind of language or the different kind of language.
2: But again, even when we think about justification, we have to think about the the term that's used in the text is "tikayo." So it's righteousness, and so we've taken this term justification, taken, kind of stripped it of what it means to be made right, and then even thinking through some of the gospels where Joseph, Joseph being a righteous man, also being a justified man so to speak so we have these ethics and we have this language that crosses both that crosses both gospel and pauline literature as well so i i'm kind of i often go back and forth are they in tension or are we just are we making more tension than what is really there
3: i I would also say God's, and this may be for only my academic people but like god spare me another book on justification and so one of the things one of the rejections of paul is this endless circle on minutiae around salvation to the exclusion of the ethical questions. You can have, you can, you can name 15. Every New Testament scholar who wants to be well-known needs to write a commentary on Romans or Galatians about justification. Right. But you don't have to write anything about Paul's ethics. You can ignore Paul's ethics your entire career and be seen as the top of the discipline. But I'm like, well then, for every, you know, I've I always said we should call for a moratorium on justification books until <laughs> until we started doing ethics. ethics. And, and, and what happens is when people People want to do ethics, you may have to turn to the gospels. Mm-hmm. And I really think and I really think that what we really need is a recovery of a holistic interpretation of Paul that goes beyond arguing over and this is an it's an important question. That's why we keep writing books about about how we're saved and the nature of justification. But I may, I will probably die before I ever publish a book on justification because right. there's fifteen thousand people who will do it, but I want to talk about Paul's ethics. Yeah. And what does Paul actually think these communities in the first century, how should they live? And he had a lot to say about that. And this is where I think the scholarship is lacking. And people who have that passion tend to go to the Gospels and not to Paul.
4: For the, for the benefit of those, those of us in the audience, can you say more about your understanding of those texts that you regard as authentically Pauline, Deuterol, Pauline? Do, are, do you? Yeah, I think it would help me to. Yeah, so understand. I think Paul wrote all of it. <laughs>
3: I know, I, know, I know I'm in the minority position, but here's the, here's the question, though. If we're going to go back to the beginning, right, if we're going to go back to the beginning and say that we have German scholarship created a standard by which they did what, what was and wasn't Pauline based upon these, these categories that we all now consider are invalid, I find it very interesting that we now still maintain that scholarly consensus. So I tell all of German scholarship to kick rocks. I'm going to start from the beginning, and I'm going to go from there. And, and for that reason, I, I think Paul wrote all of it. Now, have I, have I studied all of the arguments for and against Titus? No, I haven't, because I had other stuff to do. But <laughs> as a whole, as a whole, I think he wrote it.
5: But, well, my question, though, would be, would it matter for this conversation? Or the, does the authorship question matter for this conversation for you? Or,
4: um, yeah, maybe that's just the question. For, for me... Um... I mean, it, it depends. It, it was it was important for me knowing the the history of conversations around you know Paul and these texts. It was important for me to kind of understand the context from which you're coming yeah. on this.
3: A good a good um, example of that for that might be Ephesians, right? So the idea that the church could be universal that early was a seam as some, I mean, there's the language issues and the theological tensions. I don't want to downplay those things at all, but some of the undergirding stuff was like, of course, Paul, I mean, the first generation of Christians weren't thinking about the church in the way that they, they, they're just describing Ephesians too. And I go, well, why not? And so th- does that mean that I then have a wider kind of palette of stuff to have to deal with when it comes to Pauline interpretation? I think yes. And, but I also think that that means that, um, those who limit Paul to the seven undisputed letters, um, on one level it makes it easier because most of the stuff we don't like in Paul is in the stuff that we say isn't in there. So I take the whole thing on board and say we've got to deal with all of the things attributed to Paul as a means of constructing Christian theology. But even if you disagree with me, it's in the canon. So as a Christian who, who serves the church, I got to come to groups with the entirety of Paul's letters and, and try to put yeah. them into some kind of, be- that are.
5: was behind my question that it's in our canon. It's so, a- so if I can pull away from the particular authorship question for some level of discussion, that's why I was just really asking. Why does it, why was it important to you to know, uh, or is it rather important to know if Paul, what Paul actually wrote, um,
2: I'm going to have to go on the offensive side on this, though, because if we're thinking about the seven authentic letters and we're thinking about then the Deutero-Pauline, the secondary Paul text, again, I'm thinking that context is very important. If we're thinking about Paul and the seven authentic letters, and he's writing to these communities trying to get these communities into some, some some form of what it means to be with one another or bear with one another i i can hold on to that and i can hold on to canonization as well however when we get into those deuteropaulines and now we're having a church possibly, I argue, that's trying to figure out how do we live in this Roman empire when Jesus is not coming back immediately. And then they go back to some old standard forms. Let's go back to children obey your parents, slaves obey your masters, wives obey your husbands, and do all this and this right unto the Lord. Whereas in those earlier letters, you get More women doing things. You get women meeting in Chloe's house, or all the church coming to Chloe's house. You get Priscilla and Aquila doing some stuff, and then to say, "Now, all right, no, you can't do that anymore, women. No, you got to get back, and and now we have to get into this hierarchy that's actually a a Roman household code." I, I think that's problematic, and so I think we have to wrestle with, "Okay, this could." This is, I think, this is authentic Paul. This is Deutero Pauline, And then think about what's happening in the midst of these contexts, so that we don't automatically say, "Okay, that's the right thing to do," and they shouldn't have been doing that in the first place. And that's an argument that we're still having in our churches that I think we have to still wrestle with.
3: I'm glad you. I wanted to let. I wanted to let someone bring it up. This is what it really comes down to. Right. The the late Paul is supposed to be the slave and hate women Paul. That's the real issue, right? And so what I, what I want to say. I mean, that's what that's yeah. what it is. This, why not lie? We're going to be a courageous conversation tell the truth
1: (laughs) and so (laughs) what
3: what what i what i would say is the following rather than than and well a couple of things Mm -hmm. first you're going to run into some difficulties with not not you we are going to struggle through first corinthians 2 so i mean we're going to have that issue even if we push all of Paul's stuff later there's some stuff in the seven undisputed letters but the second thing that i would say is rather than for me putting those letters of Paul in contradiction with the earlier letters of Paul. I would say whatever um, Ephesians says has to be read, read in context where we know what Paul's practices were, and so it can't be the case that Paul expected all women to be completely silent when he's running around having women preachers. I mean, so those things. So, so rather than just saying we're going to um, dismiss Paul, and 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 I don't, and we would have a long conversation about the meaning of Greek phrase, which we just kind of skip. But what I want to say is that. If if Paul had these um, these liberative messages, then that has to inform how we read those those other texts. So he can't mean what they've said that he meant. And then when you have two interpretations on the table, which we can, if you want to Google them, they're Googleable, right? And one reading opens up the space for women to preach and teach and minister, and one doesn't. And we have. On the ground evidence for Paul's ministry, then I think the tie goes to liberation, right? If it's close, then you yeah. read in that in that direction, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so that's at least how I come. Now, people can come to it differently, but that's at least how I deal with those difficult Pauline texts. But and, there's
4: a there's a premise there yeah. that a um, that Paul's thinking does not change or evolve. Yes. I'm not saying it does. Yeah. What I'm saying is that there is an operative premise about unity, uh, about the static nature of one's thought that allows for this stratification of of sayings this conversation in some way is connected to the prior panel about our notions of authority and one of the things that i think we miss in protestant circles is we miss what early protestants meant by scripture when martin luther says sola scriptura or only scripture is authoritative he was not talking about the book or the Bible. There's a difference in Latin between scriptura and verba, okay? And Paul is, uh, and uh, Luther and these early Protestants are very clear in having a discussion and a delineation between whether it is verba that is authoritative, which is um, the letter of the book, or is it Scriptura that is authority
0: We are going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Remember to register for Courageous Conversations 2019. That's August 1st and 2nd in Atlanta, Georgia. Use that code JESUS for a limited time to get $50 registration um, at CourageousConvos.org.
5: So how can someone, if they want to get involved with you three and support this amazing conversation, uh, event that you have and just everything that G3 does. How can they get involved?
0: Well, one of the major ways they can get involved is to donate. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jude 3 Project not only reaches ch- impacts churches, but we also have an HBCU tour where okay. we engage students on campuses around the topic of Christianity being the white man's religion and we combat there that false narrative. Yeah. And one of the things we do is we raise support to help fund um, the HBCU tour so that the schools won't have to, to pay for that. So one of the ways that people can support us mm-hmm. in reaching students is to give at jute 3 projectcom or they can mm-hmm. mail in their gift. and their there's the address at jute3project.com to mail in your gift if you want to do it that way as well.
4: Awesome. The Torah is the message of the Bible, the good news, the gospel, right? It, this sort of fetishizing of the book that we find in modern Protestantism is a form of theologizing that is so foreign to early Protestants who give us this language and is a far departure from the early Christians. So, from the early Christians. So, this notion of what is divinely inspired, uh, scriptura, which um, Martin Luther is, is deriving from uh, uh, people like Augustine and, and Origen, who really gives the church its language that the scriptures are divinely inspired. And when the, when the early church, uh, these church fathers, are talking about the divine inspiration of scriptures, they will say explicitly, That it is not the letter that is inspired. It is this deeper divine meaning. Earlier we talked about uh, allegory or spiritual exegesis, as I prefer. But this notion that the book is authoritative and us needing to feel this obligation to reconcile the book, I think is a distortion of what Protestants meant by the authority of Scripture. Scriptura is decidedly different than verba. The book, it is not the book that they were regarding as inspired on matters of faith and practice, but the message, a, a Christological message that they regarded as running from Genesis to Revelation. I see you. <laughs> I told
3: her <you> I want <laughs> to make sure I didn't talk too much. So if I did something, she can kick me. So I want to make sure I give some space.
2: No, I'm still formulating my thoughts. You go ahead. <laughs>
3: I mean, I know I want to like respect that I'm in Baptist spaces, so I love all y'all, but I'm like barely Protestant. I'm Anglican. And so we don't just <laughs> we're not just coming with just so we I'm from a tradition. I'm, I'm from a tradition. There we go. I'm a, I'm from a tradition that, that contains that that honors both the inspired word. Tradition and reason. And so when I talk about the, the the dialogue between those three, for me, it comes down to the fact that ultimately the scripture has the final word. And when I talk about believing in the inspiration of scripture, it to me isn't like a confining thing. And, and it's not always even easy. I always tell my students that we use like that Jacob is the image that I like use. You got to wrestle with scripture until it blesses you. And that sometimes you come to it and you feel like I can't find meaning here, I can't find my purpose, I can't find the God that I know. But patience sometimes will bring that fruit. And then I say read widely because the first thing that happens is you come across a difficulty in Scripture and you reject it. But then maybe there's there's an interpretive tradition that you weren't aware of, or there's information that you don't have. And so I think part of inspiration is patience with the text, and that our first instinct isn't to say, well, there, here's this inevitable contradiction, here's this or that. But for me, that's like what it means to be a Christian is that in some sense, however you want to define it, I'm stuck with this text. Mm-hmm. And that it's not, it's, it's, it's not within my authority to say, I know a version of Christianity that I can construct apart from the text that is better than that which is contained, at least in the text or its tradition of interpretation. And so that's kind of where, um, and, and maybe it's humility, maybe it's arrogance. I just don't think I'm smart enough to conf- come up with an alternative version of Christianity that can sustain the community in the same way that the scriptures have. And so in that sense, I find myself like in some sense constrained um, to do the best that I can to understand it and then communicate it to the people. And I'm not, I'm flawed. I'm limited at my perspective. But at least I'm saying that if I'm wrong, show me that I'm wrong here and we can have a conversation about it.
2: But so, I, I want to say that part of what we hope for those that we may have an opportunity to minister to is that we're all thinking, reasoning people. And so we read scripture, we think about the traditions that we're in, we, we reason even within our own bodies, our own emotions, our own knowledge, and we have conversations around this. And so to have a conversation on is second Timothy Paul or not Paul is I think another part of the reasoning process that even our folks that we deeply love should be able to engage in and not break down over. That's that's the thing.
5: And I I agree with you. And I didn't mean in my question to imply that we should not be asking those questions. I was just saying we've inherited this canon. So on one level, I'm not sure I need to um, uh, with the ordinary reader um, first worry about who if Paul actually wrote that or not. Uh, I do think, as people are asking questions, we go there and I think it's helpful. I'm, I'm still wrestling with this notion of um, why, when we want to ask, tell people how, tell people if you're the pastor, I guess you're doing that, or encourage people in some way, that's our ease, encourage you. <laughs> um, but, um, but if we want to kind of point people in a particular direction, we do run Paul. So, and, and and I think there's a pragmatics there, right? He's writing letters to churches. So I think that, so I guess, I guess I'm just, in my mind, I'm still wrestling with the, the question on our panel because I'm still flooded with issues from the first panel. <laughs> but I, so, so but I we wanna,
3: need a part two for that. <laughs> yeah, but, but
5: I <laughs> this didn't, didn't want to go there. But I, I, but I guess I'm coming back to you, your question you saw about, about our, our writings on Paul resting on justification and umpteen books there and not on ethics. I'm curious what you mean by that when you say ethics, and how might that relate to,
3: to the teachings of Jesus? Um, a couple of things. I mean, there's a ton of scholarship. There's a ton of scholarship on, for example, Paul and slavery. But maybe I'm wrong. But how, how aware of that conversation do you have to be to be recognized as a leading scholar on Paul? So you could have read zero books on Paul and slavery and come into grips with it. And five books on justification. And then you get to go to all of the panels and be the expert on Paul. <laughs> And so I think that when I talk about dealing with Pauline ethics, I mean this is really the conversation we cannot have the conversation. But this is about slavery, right? Mm -hmm. And it's legacy here. Um, The entire interpretive tradition of saying servant instead of slave, like all of this stuff, are questions. So, Mm -hmm. but we know, but we also know to say that is that Paul had egalitarian communities at least the beginnings of it right where where slaves and women and jews Gentiles live together and what are the implications of that beyond the like you know i'm colorblind mess but like the real implications of that for our society so the idea that you're going to go around the first century Mm -hmm. and start somewhat egalitarian communities has direct political implications in a divided culture but where is the I'm not going to say where, who's writing about that that is recognized. Obviously, I there are people here and people who are in this front row who've suffered in their careers because they've chosen to pursue those areas and not pursue the kinds of things to get you promotion and tenure. And, so, and, and those are the policies that I'm talking about when I say not that we're not producing that scholarship, Understood. but it's not always taken seriously. Understood. Um, and,
2: it's, it's interesting that you're talking about that because, one um, – Article that is coming out next month. I don't have it with me. I'm sorry, I can't hold up the article, but it's entitled Paul's Problematic Self Identity. So when Paul talks about himself as a slave for Christ, and when Paul talks about himself as birthing children for Christ, I take issue with Paul's co-opting of language. I take issue with Paul's co-opting of slave language. I take issue with Paul's co-opting of mothering language and birthing language because he's neither slave and neither mother. And so part of what our own critical thinking skills means for me is saying that's problematic for African-American women who have grown up in antebellum slavery, I'm sorry, enslaved women who, who had to bear children for a society women who had to bear children for masters. And so, yes, we read Paul and we say, this is good. But then we have to think, well, is it really good? And what does it look like to have that conversation?
3: Can I, can I ask you a, a quick follow up on that? And this is really, cause I want to know, um, I, I think I tweet. I just might as well go home
1: saying yeah. this because <laughs> clearly I t- the people I, of God. Got I tweeted,
3: it. I tweeted, you know, Twitter is everything, right? Yeah. So I tweeted out a passage, um, where Paul was using a mothering image to talk about talk about I forget which one it's one of the he uses it in a couple of places, and most of the and the reason I did it is because you know oftentimes the ministry is seen as a masculine thing, and so most of the women who were on um, and I was tr- you know we try but we, we fail I was trying to say here's a feminine image for ministry that I thought I thought was liberative. So it's very interesting that you thought that that was an appropriation. And so because and, the response that I, that I saw when I did that and the women who were kind of, oh, yeah, I see Paul does that. So it's just really interesting that you saw what I thought of as a positive use of feminine imagery for ministry, which I thought opened up our, you know, it, it challenged both men and women to think about ministry differently. You thought of that as a negative. So can you say a little bit more about like how how we use Paul in that respect, if that's, you know, because these two different interpretations are the same, same motif.
2: Well, see the, the part that I usually come to Paul from is I am coming from thinking through black lives matter. I'm thinking through enslaved folks. I'm thinking through how have we taken up Paul and said, Oh, this is all good. Part of when we think about the authority of scripture Again, being able to push back and say, wait, is that really good? Or at least to ask the question. So Paul will say, um, you know, he's birthing children for Christ, but he'll say it in language that's still power over top down to people. So I I still see him as trying to use the language, but still trying to exert his authority over his over the people that he's trying to write to and to kind of put in place while using the language of, oh, I'm mothering to you, but you better do what I'm what I'm telling you to say, especially in Galatians. In Galatians, he's very angry. And then he comes back and uses that that mothering language. So can you have it both ways, Paul? And is that a good example for us to think about how a masculine person can use his privilege and invoke motherhood, but still be a
1: power over a whole bunch of people? That's the problem I have. Let, let me jump in with a question. Because I want... Because <laughs> I got one, Saint. Yeah. Uh, and, and I want to pull you to Sunday school class. I want to pull you out of the academy, yeah. and I want to pull you to... The 1030 Sunday school class, okay, with the saints, with the heavily highlighted Bibles and the pages folded and Sister Jenkins is in the front row and she got questions. And I'm going to imbibe Sister Jenkins right now because I want to pull us to Sunday school because at the end of the day, those are the people that we need to be talking to. So this is my Sunday school question for you. What is the gospel? What is the gospel according to Paul and what is the gospel according to Jesus? That's a good question. (laughs) Sister Jenkins wants to know.
3: I I think both of those, I think it's weird because Jesus, Paul, Paul would see Jesus as rightly as his authority, but Mm -hmm. Paul actually defines the gospel in first Romans and the first Corinthians, not what we think he does, but actually in the first seven verses where he said, the message is about Jesus Christ, descended of David, according to the flesh, declared the son of God in power as the, as by the resurrection of the dead, to which he has called him to be a apostle, bringing about the obedience of faith to the Gentiles. So Paul defines this gospel in Romans 1 as the message about Jesus Christ crucified and risen, the result of which he is now reigning as king. And now Paul needs to go to the Gentiles and tell them about this good news, which seems to me to be remarkably similar to Jesus saying in Matthew 28, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me as the resurrected king who now rules over all, now go and make disciples of all nations. And so I think Paul rightly understood in Jesus both. Now, Paul doesn't only speak about the kingdom, but Paul does define the the gospel in kingdom terms in both Romans and also in 1 Corinthians. And Jesus defines his gospel as being the good news about the kingdom. And he ends his message with, in Matthew at least, to go and evangelize. And so I would say both of them would have Jesus's universal kingship and its implications for the entire world at the center of the proclamation.
5: And I'm I'm with you. I would say the gospel is Jesus. And when Mark opens up, this is the gospel. You got your genitive there of Jesus. I think he's saying this is the good news that is Jesus. So I would say in the essence of it, Jesus is the good news, but, but his message of repent because the kingdom is near, I would say that's, that's the gospel, that the kingdom is right here, nearby, and it's there because of him. He's the one that, that's showing and demonstrating and welcoming uh, people into the kingdom. And I, and I would agree with you, Esau, you in that Paul's elaboration of that is he connects now this, this kingdom of Jesus, kingdom of God in Jesus, to the grander story of Israel so that one can see how the death and resurrection of Jesus kind of I could say completes the story, uh, if you will, of, of the Messiah. Uh, so, But I still I don't want to see a disconnect, honestly. I'm trying to say that they are connected, but I think it starts with good news of the kingdom.
2: I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit because I'm thinking about where is the context that this gospel language is coming up in? The, go- the context that the gospel language is coming up in is in the Roman Empire. And so you have a Caesar Augustus who's already declare- declared himself son of God. And you also have a Caesar Augustus who says that he brings the euangelia. He brings the good news because he's stopping the war. He's actually going and kicking everybody in the tail. And then after he's kicked everybody in the tail, he's bringing about peace.
3: What's that? And, what's that? I'll, I'll let you, what's that quote? Like he, Caesar makes a ruin and calls it peace. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yes. <laughs> and see, Jesus is coming and saying, wait, no, this gospel is not about what happens just internally for, and this is where we get it wrong. It's, it's not just about this internal, repent, believe that Jesus hung blood and died for your sins. But no, Jesus has come in a context where war is running rampant. And so good news actually means how are we going to make peace with one another so that we can live together a little bit better? And I think that Paul does the same thing, especially in the context of Galatians. And he's talking about people who are trying to be like other people like should we become jews in order to to get this gospel of jesus christ no you actually need to stay who you are and learn how to be with one another learn how to be in community learn how to love one another that's the gospel as well and so we miss it when we make it all internal and don't think about what's going on in the external because that's part of the gospel too
4: one, that's part of the gospel. one of the absolutely uh... I think the contextual applications of gospel in both Paul and in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are really uh, giving voice to this universal principle of liberation, peace, and hope, this fundamental quest that is being expressed in particular ways in the, in the gospels and in Paul, but they're really about inviting people to connect with this broad universal uh, principle and commitment to freedom and liberation. And inclusion which is both a personal value and a sociological uh value as well
3: yeah i guess i was trying to get at the kingdom like la- the liberation stuff by kingdom language one of the things that i find is interesting is that like we treat liberation theology as a separate reading of the new testament that has to or old testament that has to be gleaned that it isn't always there i want to say that that liberation narrative is actually in That's exodus it. and it's in the kingdom and so you until so you talk about the contradiction to the roman empire yes when you say i'm the king when there's other kings, there's inevitably political implications of that. Mm-hmm. But in, in, And when you then start communities that, that are under the authority of the true king, then that's political implications of it. Mm-hmm. When you then say entry into that kingdom is based of, upon faith, not anything that you do, as opposed to what it requires to get Roman citizenship, mm-hmm. that has political and cultural implications. Mm-hmm. And so you're right, the gospel itself is an invitation to be a part of God's kingdom and God's family that touches upon because the, um, the other thing that Caesar said that he was the, he was the father of the empire. Right. And so that all of all of the language of Christianity at various points touches up against not only Roman propaganda, but modern propaganda. Wow. And, it, and it, 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 in the same way that it exposes Rome for the lies that it tells, it exposes every modern empire for the lies that it tells about the ability to bring people together and establish peace and all the other stuff. I, so,
1: so, go ahead,
5: I, go ahead. I just wanted to add. <laughs> Amen. I wanted to add though, when I was um, when I when I'm quoting Jesus talking about turn because the kingdom of heaven is near, I don't mean that to say it's merely an individualistic kind of uh, pietistic, you know, get yourself right with God kind of question. I'm I'm seeing, as Esau just explained, the kingdom is a in this broad encompassing thing that we see not just in Paul but even in the in the general epistles of of, of Jesus with his with his feet over over the enemy uh, in victory all things uh, under his feet um, is is sort of that completion, that picture. So I, I just wanted to make sure I'm not I, trying to present a gospel so that's merely pietistic person.
3: I wouldn't repeat, I wouldn't, re- I wouldn't like, I mean, I think they're both. I think that Jesus, well, I, my, I, yeah, yes. yeah. I, yeah, I think that Jesus encounters us and when you hear, when you, when you see the person Indeed. of Christ, Indeed. you come face to face with your own sin and failure. Yes. And so there's this yeah. corporate reality that, that I can emphasize when it's lacking, but there's ultimately everybody has to do business with the person who calls us and part of the interest in the kingdom kingdom of evidence to say I've not lived the kingdom lifestyle Mm -hmm. and Jesus has shown me what it is and I repent of not doing that and then I begin to adopt those practices in my own life.
1: Dr. Edwards you mentioned language of drawing lines so Paul appearing to draw lines Jesus drawing circles Mm -hmm. in that for me um, it feels like there is uh, a working bias, not for you, but just in general, as we're having this conversation, that somehow Paul is intolerant and Jesus is highly progressive. So that's, that's right. the working bias. And it may be, yeah. it, it might, some of us might say, like, yeah, we think it's true, right? Um, and so in that sense, what are the ways in which we reconcile that foundational mm-hmm. bias, maybe even in this very conversation, that one of those represents the bad guy. The other one represents the good guy. And depending yeah, yeah. on what we want to do and what we believe, right. we run to one of those. Yeah. Well,
5: Dr. Edmondson, thank you. I, that's what I was trying to touch on earlier when I brought, when I brought up the word ethics, because I think that's kind of what's underneath some of the tensions people are feeling. So when we have a question about what's good behavior or, or maybe how we should look at others, we go to Jesus. And because we, we, And we would say, Jesus is welcoming. We would say Jesus is loving. And we don't, and we don't go to Paul. So, I, and I say we in a very generic sense. But I, but I do get this. I don't see as much of the tension as people may, may argue. But I do see, I, so, I, so I, my suggestion is that when we read Paul's apparent intolerance, we are somehow not taking into account uh, the picture of Jesus that, that we have, that Paul would have had that picture too. So, so say, for example, we go to the, to the woman caught in adultery and we see this very, um, uh, uh well, we, I'll say loving, but, but certainly a very fair or very welcoming, uh, posture of Jesus. And then we look at Paul and say, oh, no, 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 he's, he's ready to throw you out the church. I, I would say that Paul still has the Jesus, that Jesus in mind, but, uh, um, when you brought up the question of context, I do think there's a contextual question that we do have to wrestle with to see if there is a potential tension.
2: I think that, and this, all right, both Jesus and Paul can be problematic. Yeah, I know nobody wants to say that. Okay. <laughs> See, this is the thing. We think that Jesus is all loving, accepts everybody, and is all good. Had a conversation last night about the Canaanite woman. Jesus is having, this woman comes to him crying, begging, Jesus, my daughter is stricken with demons. Help me. He ignores her. Doesn't say a word to her. And she's still crying and disciples say, get her away from us. And then he's, seemingly says something unthinkable and dr will gaffney has written on this you need to google her sermon on that and talked about i can't give to you because i can't give to the dogs and she's like well even the dogs under the table eat of the crumbs and so we hear that in our churches and think well jesus is teaching this woman how to pray better he's 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 making he's growing her faith no no Jesus is very acting, very ethnocentrically. Actually, Jesus had some ethnicity issues and we don't want to read that in our text. So Jesus actually drew a line
1: for a moment. So let me ask you this, Dr. Parker. In that moment, is Jesus sinning against this woman?
2: This is the problem. This is what we're getting into. And this is where these courageous conversations are coming in. That's a fair question. But the thing is, all right, let's think about this. Let's think about what we say about Jesus. Jesus, fully divine, fully man, fully human. How is fully human gonna, how can someone who's not fully human save me? I need someone fully divine and fully human who understands what it means to wrestle with some of the things that we're wrestling with today, even in our ethnocentric conversations. So Jesus had to wrestle with that. We gotta wrestle with it too. I don't think... I'm, I'm not comfortable with saying that Jesus sinned against that woman, but I am comfortable with saying that Jesus was in his human self at that moment and had to wrestle with his human self. I am very comfortable with saying that. And we've got to deal with that, too.
3: We have, to have, we have another comfortable I know. conversation.
1: I And, and <laughs> they will. Thank, Thank you all so much for joining us in part two of our dialogue. Wow.
0: Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune in to all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day you take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those so it's a great app, you can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play searching June 3 Project and it'll be right there for you